Welcome to Episode 3 of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. In this episode I will be talking about one of the most vicious hookers in the history of professional wrestling. I will focus on three incidents which illustrate why other wrestlers feared Evan the Strangler Lewis. But first, the update this week will be a little light because for the second time this year I contracted COVID within the past uh, week. So I hope my voice is not too bad today. I almost just released a post on Monday, but I promised everybody four episodes in the first month of the podcast. So I think it's important that we follow through on what we promise I'm hoping the sound quality isn't too bad because I'm pretty congested. Before we get into the main content for this week's show, I can't go by without talking about the biggest news that's probably happened in professional wrestling in the last 20 years. And that is at the time of this recording on Saturday, June 18th, 2022, Vince McMahon has stepped down, at least temporarily, as the CEO and chairman of World Wrestling Entertainment. Like him or dislike him, uh, respect the things he's done the last 40-plus years or not, there's no question that Vince McMahon has changed professional wrestling as we knew it, for sure, uh, coming up in the 70s and 80s. The allegations against him are very serious, inappropriate relationships in the workplace. Um, I think that we just need to let the board investigate and find out what the conclusions are before we jump to conclusions. But based on the evidence or the information that's come out so far, I wouldn't call it evidence yet, but the information that's come out so far, there's probably little question that the inappropriate activity occurred. And this could be... uh, this is probably the most danger Vince has ever been in of being forced out of his own company. I think his appearance on SmackDown last night meant that he intends to fight it, and I don't think he'll ever go away quietly. But the allegations are pretty serious, and this is the the greatest threat to him ever as his chairmanship of the World Wrestling Entertainment. I personally, when... WWE, one of the first local television shows they took over was wrestling at the Chase in St. Louis. And I was furious when I turned on the television one Sunday and instead of getting wrestling at the Chase, we received WWE programming. At the, I'm sorry, at the time it was WWF. It became WWE later. I thought it was comic book wrestling, particularly compared to what I had grown up with in St. Louis under Sam Muchnick's promotion. And I didn't like it at first, but 
I did become a fan in the 90s of Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I, I do have to say that how Vince hooked me was not through the wrestling because through most of the 80s, I didn't think the level of wrestling in the WWF was anywhere near the level of wrestling in the National Wrestling Alliance, particularly the Crockett promotion. But the brilliant combination of Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon on primetime wrestling finally made me somewhat of a fan of WWF. So to this day, they are my favorite uh, commentary duo, and the interchanges between them, I, I still remember so many of them because Bobby was such a brilliant comedic thinker who was so quick on his feet, and Gorilla was the perfect straight man. So while I never thought the wrestling was that great, I do have to say that I uh, did come to appreciate the product through primetime wrestling and Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. So enough of the modern stuff. Let's jump into this week's show. And the subject of this week's show is still one of the favorite people that I've, my favorite people that I've ever written about. Although after I tell you the stories about him, you might question why. But Evan Strangler Lewis, not Ed Strangler Lewis, Ed Strangler Lewis actually took his name as sort of an homage to Evan the Strangler Lewis. But Evan the Strangler Lewis was one of the earliest submission wrestlers or hookers that achieved prominence in the United States. And the third combat sports book I wrote was actually on Evan the Strangler Lewis. It's called Evan the Strangler Lewis, the Most Feared Wrestler of the 19th Century. And it's still one of the best-selling books I've written, and it's still one of my favorite uh, topics. But one of the things that made Lewis so feared was not only that he was a skilled hooker or submission wrestler, but he had a vicious mean streak. And so for this week's show, I wanted to talk about three incidents in particular that are great illustrations of why Lewis was so feared by the other wrestlers and had such a bad reputation with the fans. Lewis wrestled primarily contests, but he even hurt wrestlers in work matches if the other wrestlers made him mad. Um, the only person I think approached him in viciousness was Frank Gotch, and Gotch was nowhere to the level of the mean streak of Lewis, as you will see in today's episode. So the, the first two of the three incidents that I'm going to talk to involved the same wrestler, Sorokichi Matsada, who I believe was the very first Japanese wrestler to travel from Japan to begin a professional wrestling career in the United States. In Japan at the time, sumo was king, Matsada might have had a little bit of background in sumo, but professional wrestling didn't really exist, and he wanted to be a professional wrestler, so he traveled to the United States. And he made his debut around 1883, and he was a pretty good wrestler. His biggest downfall was he was on the small side. He was about five foot four or five foot five, and at his heaviest, he was around 150, 160 pounds. He's sort of built like a barrel. But he was on the small side, and that usually hurt him uh, in his matches. In early 1886, he signs on to wrestle with 
Lewis. And this is a year before Lewis would actually become the American heavyweight wrestling champion. But Lewis is already a well-thought-of wrestler in the Midwest, particularly his native Wisconsin and Chicago, Illinois, which would become a kind of a home base of his of sorts. But he always had a tumultuous relationship with the city of Chicago. So in the first match, which takes place in January 1886, Lewis used his hang hold or guillotine choke, if you've watched modern mixed martial arts, to choke Sorokichi Matsada into unconsciousness. Originally, when I first started researching the book, I thought his stranglehold might actually be uh, in judo what they call the rear naked choke, and BJJ, it's the Mata Leon, but it's what you would hear in professional wrestling today called the sleeper hold, where the person actually cuts off the carotid artery and puts the arm behind the neck, not on the top of the head, which you see in the work sleeper hold of today. But that's not what he used. He actually used a guillotine choke, front face lock it's called sometimes, and in the newspapers at the time they called it the hang hold. For some reason the referee was slow to break the men. And when he finally jumps in, uh, Lewis just drops Matsada, who has been unconscious for several seconds and whose face is now ashen. Sorry for that pregnant pause. I had to cough and didn't want to do it in the mic. So after he drops Matsada to the mat and Matsada's face is now gray and ashen, Matsada starts to recover consciousness and jumps up and tells Lewis he can't do that to him again and challenges Lewis not to use the hanghold in the next match. Lewis despised the fact that so many people wanted to ban his stranglehold. Many wrestlers would not wrestle him. William Muldoon would not wrestle him in a catch match because he would not take the chance of having Lewis grab him with the hanghold. And this would be a sore subject for Lewis throughout his entire career, and it's why he had such a checkered uh, relationship with the city of Chicago. Lewis agrees to a rematch in February 1886, and he agrees not to use the hanghold. Although, I believe the mayor in this match... I'm almost positive the mayor in this match, refused to grant the promoters a license or a permit to hold the event unless the hanghold was banned. And this would start a long tradition of the Chicago mayors demanding that the hanghold be banned or they wouldn't issue the permit for the promoters to hold the event. Regardless, Lewis agrees that he's not going to use the hanghold. Instead, as soon as the match started, Lewis dove for a leg lock and basically caught him in a form of the toe hold and put pressure <clears throat> and put pressure on the hold until the ringsiders heard a loud snap. The ringside fans thought he had actually broken Matsada's ankle, but he didn't break his ankle. He damaged the, the ligaments in the leg. It was basically the same outcome, though. Matsada had to be away from the ring for four or five months while his ankle healed up. Uh, 
And after Lewis heard the snap, he let go of the leg hold and was smirking over the damage he had caused until the Chicago fans started to boo him out of the building. Lewis is kind of shocked by their reaction, but non-pulse teaches continues on his way back to the the dressing room and this would as i said these two incidents really marked him as a villain for the remainder of his career for the rest of his career he was generally booed by all the audiences and it's because these two matches with matsada probably because they occurred in chicago they were carried by every newspaper in the country so everybody was aware of Lewis's reputation. Lewis's reputation after these matches would follow him and in the last incident I want to talk about the newspaper article that carried the story about this match went under the headline of Strangler up to his old tricks. And what occurred was there was a match in Buffalo, New York on March 21st, 1888, and Lewis was now the American heavyweight wrestling champion, but this match was not for the title. Lewis wrestled the wrestling champion of the Buffalo Police Department, Peter Gallagher. And as often happened with dominant champions back in this day or dominant wrestlers, when they were taking on a wrestler that the fans viewed as inferior, they would often agree to handicap stipulations to make the match more interesting and make the opponent actually appear, and sometimes they did have, a chance to win the match. So for this match, Lewis agreed to throw Gallagher five times in an hour. Gallagher <clears throat> was so confident, he did not ask the promoters to ban the stranglehold. Since the stranglehold was not banned, Lewis immediately tried to grab the hanghold as soon as the match started, and he used the hanghold when he couldn't apply it to choke him. He used it to throw Gallagher around the mat. And it was a pretty brutal-looking spectacle from what everybody said. Well, Gallagher, being the Buffalo Police Department champion, you not only had many... Buffalo Police Department officials and police officers there, you also had the Buffalo Mayor Becker who was on hand to view the match. After the first two falls, he thought the match was so brutal, he told the referee to either ban the hang hold or cancel the match. He wasn't going to allow the match to go on if Lewis continued to use the hang hold. As you can imagine, when the referee told Lewis this, the official interference infuriated Lewis. And since he could not take out his anger on the mayor, although I'm sure he would have loved to try, Lewis took out his aggression on Gallagher. So during the third fall, he got Gallagher to the ground with basically a hammerlock. And the hammerlock was underneath Gallagher where Gallagher was laying on one of his arms that Lewis had pinned behind him. Lewis takes his free arm and goes across Gallagher's neck with it, putting the point of his elbow into Gallagher's throat. Gallagher starts gurgling because 
of the pressure on his windpipe, and Becker yells to one of the police captains nearby, he's choking him, he's choking him, the hold is supposed to be banned, the hold is supposed to be banned. Well, the hang hold was banned, <laughs> but what he was doing wouldn't have been legal, period. You couldn't do a windpipe choke like that in the wrestling match. The referee tried to get Lewis to relinquish his hold, and Lewis wouldn't do it. So the Buffalo police captain sends six of his officers into the ring to stop the match. They, at first, can't pull Lewis off of Gallagher. Eventually, they are able to pull him off. And when they pull Lewis off and let him go, Lewis turns around to face the police, and now he's going to go for his next match against six Buffalo police officers. It was only after the Buffalo police officers produced their nightsticks that Lewis decided that the odds weren't in his favor, but he didn't jump out of the ring or anything. He just kind of looked at him, gave him his familiar smirk, backed out of the ring, and went back to the uh, dressing room area. He wasn't ever arrested. The, the police didn't, you know go back and arrest him for what he had done, but he could have been. And that's the kind of guy Lewis was. Lewis wasn't going to back off with six police officers facing him until they pulled their nightclubs out. He was the type of wrestler that would have said, go get two or three more guys and we'll, we'll start even here. And it's incidents like these that caused Lewis to be so feared. People were scared to get him mad because when he lost his temper, he saw red and he would hurt people. Um, he used a hanghold. He used ankle submissions. He would use arm bars and break people's arms. He was a very vicious individual that you didn't want to make mad. By the same token, he also worked matches with people. And there were several newspaper articles when he was champion that he went into a local champion's area and worked a match with him, and as long as the local champion was respectful, he would let the local champion win the second fall from him. You know, win a fall. <clears throat> Most of the matches were three out of five, so he'd win three, but he'd let the local champion win one as a courtesy. So he was an odd guy, but your your best bet was not to ever make him angry. And... Besides all his ring exploits, Lewis also was famous because he caught typhoid pneumonia three times in his career and survived all three times. Twice, he was not expected to make it. And one of the outcomes of that was his title match with Martin Farmer Burns, which occurred in 1895, took four years to actually come off. because he was recovering from the typhoid pneumonia that they thought was, was going to kill him. So if he sounds like an interesting guy, uh, if you go to the show notes, I'll have a link up there for the book I wrote. There's also other uh, posts on the website as well dealing with Evan Strangler Lewis. So fascinating, fascinating guy. Before I move on to preview for next week's show, and I'm, I apologize. This week's show is a little bit shorter. I didn't know how long I'd be able to go, but I did want to deliver on producing the episode. Uh, last week, I talked about 
the Sam Muchnick's retirement card that I had attended in 1982. Well, for this week's show, I actually wanted to end with the very first wrestling card that I saw live. It was uh, my 11th birthday present from my uh, natural father, Ken Sr., and he took me to the matches for my birthday. My birthday is uh, in the middle of January, so this match, or I'm sorry, this card, occurred on Friday, January 25th, 1980. And uh, St. Louis, under Sam Muchnick, St. Louis was a Friday night town. And it remained so for most of Bob Geigel's tenure as So the, the card for that, the reason uh, my dad took me is because it was, Andre the Giant usually came to town once or twice a year, and he was going to be in town on January 25th. So my dad took me as my birthday present. Unfortunately, earlier that day, I had chipped a tooth. And by the time we went to the wrestling matches, I don't remember as much of it as I would have liked because I was in so much pain from the chipped tooth. But the, the card started out with a curtain raiser match of Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Sharp defeating Ron McFarlane and Billy Howard. Uh, Sharp pinned McFarlane in 10 minutes 40 seconds. McFarlane pinned Sharp in 6 minutes and 14 seconds. And then Gilbert pinned Howard in 4 minutes and 41 seconds. So it was the best 2 out of 3 fall to start the night. And went about a half an hour. The second match was extremely short. Takachio defeated Kerry Brown in 3 minutes and 44 seconds. Kerry Brown was the nephew of St. Louis's uh, number one, well, he wasn't the number one heel. He was the number one mid-card heel who, when a fan favorite beat him, you knew that they were getting ready to challenge for the Missouri title or the world title. Then Pat O'Connor defeated Ed Wolf Wiskowski in 13 minutes and 28 seconds. Most people remember Wiskowski as Colonel De Beers, the racist South African gimmick in the mid 1980s. The fourth match was David Von Erich and Sailor Art Thomas defeating Lord Alfred Hayes and Bulldog Bob Brown in a one fall tag match. The Von Erichs were huge in St. Louis, and we started seeing the Von Erichs as soon as they made their de debut in the late 70s. Kevin Von Erich defended his Missouri championship by defeating Jack Briscoe in one fall. This was a fan favorite versus fan favorite match. These matches were common in St. Louis, which is why we always viewed it as a sport. When I was talking about going to Sam Muchnick's retirement card last week, what I didn't say was, was my sister and I were leaving the event. We kind of got turned around, and we ended up down this hallway where there was a, a row of payphones. And at those payphones were Dick the Bruiser, Greg Valentine, and Ric Flair. And I shook all three guys' hands, and they were very uh, gracious to us fans because several of us <laughs> stumbled into this area trying to get out of the Checker Dome that night because it was not the normal arena we usually attended. And we didn't think anything of that. That didn't break kayfabe in St. Louis because it was always presented as a sport. 
You would expect the athletes, whether they were fan favorites or rule breakers, they don't fight outside of the ring. They only wrestle because they're professionals. <clears throat> so St. Louis, was it was not unusual to have a Kevin Von Erich defend his Missouri championship by defeating Jack Briscoe. It also wouldn't have been odd for Ken Batera to be wrestling Harley Race, even though both were uh, rule breakers or heels, whatever terminology you want to use. And then the co-main event was a match. And this, this I do, there's one thing from this match I remember. My dad talked about it for years. King Kong Brody and Dick Murdoch defeated Dick the Bruiser and Andre the Giant. And what I remember about this match more than anything was there was a spot in the match where Andre the Giant reached across and grabbed King Kong Brody by the hair. And Brody reached up and grabbed with both hands on Andre's hand. And Andre was able to lift him off the ground while Brody's feet ran, you know, in midair underneath him. Now, that was accomplished with cooperation from Brody. But I'll never forget seeing that and thinking how strong Andre had to be, even with cooperation, to be able to do that. And my dad talked about that spot from that match for years. And it's one of the things I do remember from that night. And then Sam wasn't going to let the fans go home disappointed. So the, the final bout of the evening was a 16-man battle royal. And Andre the Giant and Dick the Bruiser were the last two in the ring. And they agreed to be co-winners of the match for the night. And that was the first card I ever attended. I wish I, like I said, I wish I remembered more of it. But that was my first uh, wrestling card. That was, I think that was also the only card I ever attended with Ken Sr. After that, I usually attended the matches with my older sister, Vicky, who was my stepdad's oldest daughter. So that's about it for this week's episode. Next week, I'm going to uh, talk about the most famous double cross in the history of professional wrestling, which brought down the dominant promotional group of the 1920s. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, KenzermanJr.com is the place to go. You can see what I'm working on currently and a list of books I've written if you're interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. Thank you for listening today. I would also like to apologize for the pauses to cough hopefully uh by the next episode my voice will be a lot better and the sound quality will be better next time as well i would also be grateful if you would rate this podcast on itunes or wherever you listen to the show that helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it if you have already done this thank you so much if you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to KenzermanJr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Any questions are welcome. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.